Uh, we sure missed being here with you last Sunday morning. Uh, we had, a, uh, as Pastor Ben said, a much-needed vacation, but we had a great family getaway and uh, got in last night, and now we're trying to recover from vacation and headed off to kids' camp. So uh, we'll have a, a great time this week uh, at kids' camp, playing hard, working hard, and, and, and just enjoying our time together. You know, one day while we were out on the, uh, the beach there on the North Carolina coast this past week, we experienced something that probably a lot of you have uh, at the coast, and it reminded me of the days living at the coast, and that's how unpredictable the weather can be when you're right there on the coast, right there on the beach. Uh, there was one of those days where thunderstorms were forecast, and indeed while we were out there in the ocean and on the beach, you could see the clouds building up, and you knew they were coming, you knew it was only a matter of time, and it just seemed like they never got there, and it would get louder, and then the day might go by, and it rained inland, but it never rained right there on the beach, and you were like, well, thank you, Lord, for keeping the rain away, and then other days, you, it was coming, it was building, and it got closer, and, and then finally, you made your way in, and then you saw the storm kind of go around, you heard the thunder, you, you saw the lightning, and eventually, eventually, we did see a, a thunderstorm or two while we were there. You remember what it's like to watch a storm build like that, and you, you think you're going to be part of it, and you might, you might not be. It's unpredictable. When we lived on the coast, we had, it's interesting, the past 16 years, they haven't had a hurricane hit that part of the, uh, the, the state. But when we lived there, there were six hurricanes in four years. So I think we might have been hurricane magnets or something. But something about those storms coming you know, to and from the coast is that they're so unpredictable. You, you, you see all the signs of a storm building, and you, you hear the sounds of a storm building, but it may or may not be time for the storm to arrive. And, and that's really in God's hands, is it not? The weathermen have been proven wrong again and again and again, so it's, it's really all in God's hands. All you can do is observe the signs the best you can and listen to the sounds and, and say, it sounds close. Well, I want you to look at a passage of Scripture that will... I think, remind us that the sounds and sights are getting a little bit closer. As we continue our study of Revelation, turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. Let's stand as we read about the first four seals here. Uh, We'll try to look at all six if we have time this morning. But I at least want to cover the first four seals of Revelation chapter 6. Now, just to catch some of you up uh, with us, we've been studying this book of Revelation, and we're titling the series Unconquered because we need to grasp the fact that as the church, the body of Christ, when it seems that all hell is breaking loose on the earth, the church will be unconquered. We will remember, as the song said a moment ago, the empty grave and that we will be victorious. We come to a place here where the lamb that we saw being worshipped in chapters 4 and 5, the one who was worthy to unleash the judgments of God and, and to open these seals is now beginning to open the seals. And let's see what's revealed. It says, Then I saw a lamb, a the lamb, open one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures, we said that's likely one of the angels there around the throne, say with a loud voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and there was a white horse. The horseman on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out as a victor to conquest. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse went out, a fiery red one. And its horseman was empowered to take peace from the earth, so that people 
would slaughter one another, and a large sword was given to him. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I, I looked, and there was a black horse. The horseman on it had a balanced scale in his hand. And then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. But do not harm the olive oil and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures say, Come. And I looked, and there was a pale green horse. The horseman on its name was named Death, and Hades was following after him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by wild animals of the earth. Father, we may not completely understand this text, but we ask for your spirit to give us discernment, understanding, wisdom to learn from the principles behind these precepts that would be as applicable for us today as it will be in the future and as it has been in the past. Teach us and prepare us to be your soldiers, your saints in the days to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Revelation chapter 6 through 19. By many have been chapters that are described as what's known as a tribulation period. Broken up into uh, two, three and a half year periods, and I'll, I'll explain a little bit more about why that is later. But uh, the, the tribulation period and the great tribulation period, and and for many of us, we believe these are days that are still ahead. In Billy Graham's book, Approaching Hoofbeats, Billy Graham wisely avoids trying to give specific names and, and specific events from the late 1970s and early 1980s, some of the things that were going on during that time. But rather say, these are approaching hoofbeats. These are things that are yet to come. But his point was, we're close enough to hear the sounds. And I believe if in the late 70s and early 80s, Billy Graham could say that, even today we would be much closer. So I'm asking us to think this morning, can you hear the hoofbeats? as you listen to the storm that's building around us in the world today. Now, in the 70s and the 80s, I can remember as a child and in my early teens, it was communism that we were afraid of. You would go to bed at night wondering, Is the Russian, will the Russians get us tonight? I remember watching the movie when I was about 12 or 13 years old called The Day After. Man, that will scare you, will it not? And the day after showed what nuclear, a nuclear holocaust would look like upon the face of the earth. Anybody remember seeing that movie? Raise your hand. And some of you that, that were like maybe the age I was when I saw it, it left a lasting impression. And I remember, you know, after nuclear holocaust had basically covered the face of the earth and, and this nation, um, someone's discussing, you know, how, how would World War Four? this was supposed to be World War Three. how would World War Four be fought? And the answer was, uh, with sticks and stones because there was nothing left. And so we tried as Christians to tie a lot of that into the end times. Is it Russia? Is it China? Who is it that's going to start this whole process? 
when we look at this passage, we see the four horsemen. I want us to be careful not to embarrass ourselves like many have done, even recently and certainly in times past. When I introduced this series, I gave the names of a lot of people who have embarrassed themselves, many that I believe were even men of God who overstepped their bounds when it came to identifying the four horsemen and many of the other things that are happening here in Revelation. But I do believe that the hoof prints, the hoof beats are getting louder as the day approaches. So the opening of the six seals, and then we'll get to the seventh one, introduces this period that we might call the tribulation period. Now some of you perhaps are thinking this morning, why would we even study this? Why, do we, why would we study the tribulation period? Of what significance, of what relevance is that to the church in the 21st century? Well, I want us to keep some things in mind. Let, let me give you a few reasons before we dig into this text why we should be studying the tribulation period. First of all, of all the book of Revelation is not just prophecy. The book of Revelation is also theology. And because it's theology, it teaches us principles and it teaches us attributes that relate to who God is and how God works. And who he is and how he works is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we need to understand how God is at work in our world today by studying this book that's not just prophecy but also theology, especially Christology. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so whether you take a a preterist approach, you're saying, what's a preterist? Uh, the preterists, remember, believe that all of these things that you read about in Revelation all took place in the first century under the uh, tyranny of the emperors Nero and Domitian. They say all this has already taken place. It's just a description of what's already taken place. Even if that's so, there are biblical principles that apply today just as much as they did in the first century. And then there are the, the, the historicists who come along and say, no, 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 Revelation is just a panorama of church history. Even if that is true, the principles and the precepts still apply today. And then there are those who would agree with me that you cannot deny the apocalyptic nature of Revelation, the, the fact that it addresses the consummation of the ages, that there are days that are still to come, that is, that is a, a futurist approach to Revelation, especially from chapters 4 to the end of the book. And so when we look at that from a futurist perspective, we could say, well, that's off in the distance. But even if it is in the future, the principles still apply today, things that we'll look at even this morning. Uh, another reason we need to study is that the events, if, the, if Revelation is speaking of the future, as I believe it is from chapter 4 on, the events that take place, even beginning with the opening of these seals, describe an environment that is already in place that these four horsemen come riding into. And so perhaps we're in that environment even today, and I think you'll see what I'm talking about in a moment. Uh, the, also another reason to study are the events unleashed should place within us a holy fear. Keith Krell, a commentator, said that it should scare you to death, should scare the daylights out of you. It should place within us a holy fear, a new respect for the holiness of God, and a great appreciation for the grace of God that we're now living under. It should also cause us not to be this worldly, because 
when we begin to put too much stock in the things of this world, when we begin to think too much of our reputation, our popularity, how much we're loved, how much we're liked, how much we own of this world, when we see these events take place, we realize we better not be putting our hope in these things. And so it should cause us not to be so this-worldly. And then it should make us, and this is perhaps most important, it should make us more missional as Christians. It should cause us to want to share the gospel during this age of grace to tell more people that, that we possibly can that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord and that he's coming soon. Now, the reason I take a futurist approach really has a lot to do with Daniel's 70-week prophecy in the book of Daniel. And we don't have a lot of time to break that down this morning, but if you just want to kind of glance at Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, you get a little feel for what I'm talking about. Daniel prophesied concerning the Jewish people that there would be 70 more weeks of their history. And he kind of broke it down this way, that there's going to be seven weeks. Now, when we use the word weeks there in Daniel's prophecy, the word for weeks is simply the plural form of the number seven. Seventy sevens. And almost all scholars believe that that refers to periods of years because he's describing human history, world history, ahead of time, if you will. (laughs) And so he says in seven periods of, of seven years... Or 49 years, 7 times 7, 49, I think I still do the math there. In 49 years, plus 62 more weeks, which, you know, roughly 483 years, there's going to be all of this Jewish history that leads up to the coming of the Messiah. Many believe that that first 49 years described, uh, because it was all from the decree of Artaxerxes, when the Jews were captive in Babylon, to go back to Israel and to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. And so many believe it took 49 years just to kind of clean up the mess, and that's what the first seven years had to do, or the seven sevens, the the first 49 years had to do with. And then the rest of the prophecy kind of predicted everything leading up to the coming. Uh, Some scholars have even done the math to say if it were Jewish years, 360 days, and you multiply 360 times the 483 years, that Daniel predicted to the day that Jesus would ride in on a donkey into Jerusalem. And of course we know that at the end of that week he gave up his life, the the cutting off of Messiah. But that leaves another week of Jewish history yet to be fulfilled. And some say, no, that really described allegorically a time period in the first century and that after the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., God was finished and done with the Jewish people, other than those who would come to faith in Christ and be a part of the church. Others, uh, and we would call that first group maybe more the covenant theologians, God's finished with Israel. We don't really have to think about how they're going to play out in in the future. Others come along in, in, in more of the dispensational crowd, which I'm kind of somewhat associated with, and, and they would say, hey, no, God is not finished with the Jewish people. He's just kind of got them in a holding pattern for this 70th week to be fulfilled. I would say God's not finished with Jewish people. He's working among them even today. And he still has another week of where the Jewish people are going to be the centerpiece of history. Another week of years, another seven years. I also happen to believe personally, and I don't lose fellowship with anybody who disagrees with me over this, that the reason the Jews do become the centerpiece of of kind of human history or religious history again 
in the future is because the church has been raptured out. So that would make me a pre-tribulational um, rapture, I believe, in a, in a premillennial pre-tribulational rapture that the church is going to be taken out of here. But be careful, lest you look at that and say, well, that means we'll never go through tribulation. Not true. Remember, this is an environment that will be in place when the tribulation period comes. And there are Christians around the world today, and there always have been Christians around the world who are being persecuted, even martyred for their faith. And so you've got to be real careful about being legalistic about any of these points when you're dealing with apocalyptic literature. The bottom line is we have to approach the Word of God humbly here because we don't have all the facts. Now, if you date Revelation around 95 A.D., and there are things that are still to come, I have a hard time saying all this took place in the first century because John understood, I believe, as he recorded this, that Jesus was saying these things are still to come. And at the consummation of the ages, the kicking off of what we might call the tribulation period if the church has been raptured out would be the arrival of the first horseman. And we see these first four horsemen or the first four seals kind of give us the first point that I want us to see this morning, and that is this calamity is allowed by God. This calamity that, that, that comes upon the world like the world has never seen is still all in God's hands. Remember, if you look back at verse 1, he saw the Lamb. The Lamb, capital L in your Bible and in my Bible, refers to the fact that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who came on the scene and was worshipped in chapters 4 and 5, in that context of worship, now the Lamb begins to un unleash these seals. And as he opens the first seal, it reminds us that Jesus Christ is the one who has to allow what is about to happen to happen. Nothing happens without his permission. And so this calamity is being allowed by God. And this angelic being says, come, and he summons the first horseman. Some of your Bibles say, come and see. In the earliest, more reliable Greek manuscripts that we have, the words and see aren't really there. It's just simply the word come. And, and so he summons not John to come and see what's taking place. John is already looking at what's taking place. And now the angel is giving permission under the initiation of Jesus Christ himself by opening the seal for the first horseman to ride in. And so this is God's timing. This is God's initiative. It's His sovereignty as a reminder of our need to trust. This horseman comes on the scene and it says, I looked and there was a white horse. As soon as you read white horse, many refer to Revelation chapter 19 and they say, oh, wait a minute, that must be Jesus. Remember what Lee Corso says when uh, people are picking a certain team to win and he's getting ready to pull the upset on college game day? Anybody you know what he says? Not so fast. Many believe this is Jesus. Not so fast. I looked and there was a white horse. The horseman on it had a bow. A crown was given to him. Interestingly, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 12, Jesus returns on a white horse, but it's a different crown. Here, here, when he returns in chapter 19, he's wearing the diadems. He's, it's the many crowns that he's crowned with. 
Here it's not the word diadem for the permanent crown and the kingly crown. It's the word stephanos, which is the temporary victor's crown, like a wreath that one would wear. And so I believe that this horseman's victory, this horseman's conquest is very temporary. I believe that we're reading about the Antichrist right here who comes on the scene, who, if you go back to Daniel's prophecies, he would establish a covenant with God's people. That covenant would be broken in three and a half years. That's the first half of the tribulation where he's bringing protection and peace to the people of Israel. So he will set this, this false peace with Israel. Be real careful when you think that everybody who is on Israel's side is always doing the right thing. <laughs> they could be setting the stage to be a false representation of peace. We often look for Antichrist coming among Israel's enemies, but when the Antichrist comes, he will come as Israel's friend at first. So the white horse comes on the scene. This is allowed by Christ, and then things really get to rocking and rolling. In verses 3 and 4, we saw that the red horse comes on the scene when the angel summons and says, Come, and the rider on the red horse comes. This is a representation likely of unprecedented war because uh, horses not only symbolize war, but the red horse usually meant, or the color red often meant bloodshed, and we begin to follow this with the description of the Bible interpreting itself, and so he has empowered to take peace from the earth so that the people would slaughter one another, and a large sword was given him. So there's, there's this lack of any respect whatsoever for life in general as people begin to slaughter one another. So the hoofbeats are getting louder there, aren't they? The greatest fears aren't communist Russia anymore, are they? Children that were my age, when I was in the late 70s, early 80s, children that age today, they walk by the TV and you have to change the channel because we read about what ISIS is doing in the world. We read about what's going on in the streets in the United States. It's total disrespect for law and order, or even our law enforcement fear for their lives. Total disregard for life and bloodshed on the face of the earth. Lawlessness in the streets. Then verses 5 and 6, the black horse comes on the scene. This is a, a picture of extreme famine. The horseman on it had a balance scale in his hand. And he heard this saying, among the four living creatures, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. But do not harm the olive oil and the wine. What's happening here? Rationing is happening here. Starvation is happening across the face of the earth. Prices for food are out of control. And then all of the crime that accompanies that comes on the scene. The world has seen famine before, but not like this. From 800 A.D. to 1000 A.D., there was a famine that wiped out one million of the Mayans, and then we know that it ultimately led to the demise of the Mayan civilization. 1601 to 1603, two million Russians died of starvation, and then half of the population of Estonia. So you could begin to hear the hoofbeats already. 1783, 1784, 11 million died in the famine of southern India. In the 1800s, from the beginning to the end of the 1800s, there were four different famines that led to over 100 million deaths 
in China. In the past 500 years put together, the nation of Ethiopia has lost countless millions. So famine comes on, but famine like the world has never seen. This worldwide famine is in place. And then in verses 7 and 8, we see not Clint Eastwood, not Kurt Russell from the movie Tombstone, but he opened the fourth seal, heard the voice of the fourth creature say, Come. I looked, and there was a pale green horse. The horseman on it was named Death. And Hades, the King James says, and hell was following after him. Some of your translations, some modern translations, they use the word grave. King James uses the word hell. In the Greek, it is the word Hades. And so I'm happy to be reading from the, the Holman, which just transliterates, takes the, the, the Greek word for Hades right out of the, the context and puts the same word right here in the English language. But it's the Greek word Hades that could refer to hell, could refer to the grave, and I would say it means both of them. But the point was, is they, they were seeing death and the grave everywhere. And it was multiplied effects of what had already happened, and then some authority was given to them, death and hell, over a fourth of the earth, to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and even by the wild animals of the earth, which seem to turn themselves upon the human race. We've seen holocaust, we've seen tsunami, we've seen war, we've seen famine, and now it's all going to be poured out at one time on the face of the earth. Now what's the point? It would be enough if this would frighten us enough to say, listen, God's wrath is coming like never before, but it could or it may not be in my lifetime. But if it motivates us to lead more people to faith in Christ, wonderful. The point of this passage, though, goes back to the fact that it's the Lamb opening the seals that no calamity happens without God's permission. When we realize what God is restraining today, we should worship at His feet. Let's move on to the fifth seal. Not only is calamity allowed by God, but Christians are avenged by God. Christians have been, are, and will be avenged by God. The opening of the fifth seal, verses 9 through 11, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those slaughtered of God's word and the testimony they had. It's a picture of this heavenly altar. It's speaking likely figuratively of the fact that just like in the, the holy place, a, a sacrifice was given unto God. These saints of the tribulation have sacrificed themselves, have given their very lives for the sake of the gospel. It says for the word, for God's word, and for the testimony they had. They would not say Caesar is Lord. They, they would not bow to the pressures of the world. They would stand on the word of God. They would not quit sharing the gospel. You know, in Russia, they've made it illegal to evangelize again. It seems to be coming closer and closer to us, hoofbeats. They cried out with a loud voice, O Lord, holy and true, how long until you judge and avenge our blood from those who live on the earth? So a white road was given to each of them. Some people say that's because they were already given a glorified body. I believe this is figurative language, that their souls are present 
with the lamb, but the white robes represent that they were made righteous and their even judgment would be righteous at this time. They were told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were going to be killed just as they had been would be completed. So the historicists would say these are, moder- these are martyrs throughout human history. The futurists would say these are the martyrs of the tribulation. The bottom line is the point is this. Vengeance's mind saith the Lord, I will repay. It's not in our hands. So Christians, I believe from the tribulation period, if you read chapter 7 and, and verse 4 and then verses 9 through 14, you, you see this picture of Jewish missionaries, if you will, Jewish evangelists, the 144,000 that, that are on the face of the earth taking the gospel, that's probably the remnant that comes to Christ that takes the gospel to the world. Their name, why do I believe they're Jewish? Well, he he names every tribe that they're from in verses 5 through 8. And then this impacts the world in verse 9. You see, after this is chapter 7, after this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, just like those who had been raptured, those who were there around the throne worshiping in heaven in chapters 4 and 5, people from every tribe, and every nation, every people, and every language will be even martyred during the tribulation period. And so, justice is being served, but not by them. Romans chapter 12 and verse 19 says, Don't take revenge for yourself. God didn't call us to practice vigilante justice. God says, I've got this. And then he, Paul, when he says that in Romans chapter 12, he quotes Deuteronomy 32 in verse 35, vengeance is mine, th- saith the Lord, I will repay. Remember, Revelation teaches us that God is going to make all things right in his time. Now, the question that those who reject Christ bring to our attention often is this. If God is good and God is omnipotent, why do all these bad things happen? When we understand the holiness of God, we understand the the power of God, and we understand the sinfulness of man and how we've turned our back on Him and rejected Him, the better question is not if God is all-loving and all-good and all-powerful, then then why does He stop evil in the world? The better question is if God is holy and God is just and righteous when He judges, why is He withholding the judgment from us today? Why doesn't all hell break loose on us right now? Because God is gracious and loving and withholding it, he told Peter, as Peter wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God's not willing that any should perish. He's waiting for more to come to faith in him. Matthew 24, verse 37, it says, As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. What was it like in the days of Noah? Well, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, God said, I won't always put up with this. I won't always strive with man. And, And what will be being done to his saints will be avenged by Christ and Christ alone. But there's an environment of martyrdom that's already here. And the saints are just simply asking, when? When, when is all this coming about? When is this coming to an end? And then finally, let's look at the sixth seal this morning. Creation will be altered by God. Creation will be altered by God. Then I saw, this is verse 12. So I'm open the sixth seal, a violent earthquake occurred, the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The entire moon became like blood, 
The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by high wind. Some say that's literally shooting stars, meteors. Others say that it's, it's nuclear weapons, missiles coming through the air. All John says is that they fell from heaven. He, remember, he's, this is apocalyptic language. He's describing it the best way he can. The sky separated like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. And then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the military commanders, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains, to the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Because the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Many believe that, verse, uh, that, that the seals 4 through 6 describe the great tribulation period, God's judgment upon the earth. It's hard to see that as just allegorical because first century Jews and, and Christians were being persecuted, but it didn't seem like to this extreme, not to this extent. Had we been there, we might say, yeah, man, this is going on today. Again, what's the point? Creation being altered by God. It's that God is in control. That all of this is happening because God is allowing it to happen, because the Lamb has unleashed the seals. It means for us, we need to quit wasting this age of grace that we're living in, and we need to tell the world, you don't have to be a part of the judgment of God. Judgment upon the earth during a future tribulation period or judgment because you rejected Christ and face eternity without Him. Don't put your hope in this world. Christians everywhere are fighting over who to vote for. We're, we're trying to save the world by getting to the... Uh, brothers and sisters in Christ that I love dearly are starting to lose fellowship with each other over who to vote for. Usually they're thinking of a couple of men and not the lady, but, but they're, they're losing fellowship. If you're a real Christian, how could you not vote this way? Well, if you're a real Christian, how could you vote this way? We should be good citizens. We should stand up for our values, and I believe we should go to the polls and, and vote pro-life and vote, vote for the sanctity of marriage and vote for religious freedom. But don't panic at the sound of the hoofbeats. Don't panic and, and, and don't pout when Washington sounds hopeless. Our redemption is drawing nigh, and it's not from Washington. It's not from a future president. See, people say, well, I don't know if I see America in the prophecy or not. Well, if we do, it's because it's one of the many kingdoms that's going to fall. Fall at the feet of the Lamb. When I was out on the deck at the beach house on Friday evening, Tina came out and joined me a little while. Somebody was shooting fireworks just down from us. It was kind of cool. I'm like, man, free fireworks show. I didn't have to go over and buy any. They're just, man, they were going out over the ocean, just exploding. It was beautiful. And just sit there and watch a little bit. Karis came out. We watched the fireworks over the ocean. 
They were beautiful, but they didn't last a long time before we knew it. They, they had used up all their fireworks, and the show was over. And as it just got pitch dark out there, you could just see the sky full of the stars. You could see the moon coming up in a brilliant red over the ocean. And I thought, man, God has a way of just kind of showing us up, doesn't he? We can put together a little something. But the kingdoms of this world, and yes, the United States of America included, when it comes to God's plan and the consummation of the ages, the kingdoms of this world are going to be like fireworks. They might be brilliant for a little while, but one day God's kingdom is going to be established in such a way that we're going to say, where was the brilliance of man's nations? And see, we're reminded here, as he closes out these seals in verse 15, then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the military commanders, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person, hid. they hid among the rocks. They became as nothing when God shows up. God allows his plan to bring about the consummation of the ages. So my hope is in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And he will be my king regardless of who will be my president. (laughs) Jesus will be king forever. And and we don't have to get discouraged. We don't have to cry. We we don't have to say, well, if this person's not elected or if that person's not elected or if this person is elected or if that person is, it's all over. Listen, it's all going to be over anyway. When he returns... And perhaps all that's going on that rattles us a little bit is just the sound of hoofbeats. The king is coming. And he won't be elected by the United States Electoral College. He'll be elected, chosen by his father to show up on the scene. Would you bow your heads with me?